friends, our scripture lesson today is taken from the gospel according to Mark, chapter 12, verses 38 through 44. As he taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be Well, we are in the second and final week of this series I'm calling All, where we're talking about the fact that, you know, most of us are feeling really tired, we're feeling maxed out, we don't need more demands on us, and yet you have these passages, uh, these two weeks, where where Jesus is talking about all, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and here we have the story of this widow who gives her all to the treasury. So what does that mean? What are the expectations of all in a time when we're already feeling maxed out. So I want to talk about that today, and and we begin in an interesting place because it starts with Jesus saying, beware of the scribes. Now remember last week, the person who asked Jesus the question, what is the first commandment, is a scribe. All right, and so he has this conversation with the scribe. The scribe gives a good answer. They have a great dialogue, and, uh, and yet Jesus starts here and says, beware of the scribes, okay? Now, now, why does he say beware of the scribes? Well, it gets specific in just a moment, but one of the things we need to remember is that the scribe is an expert in religious law, and one of the things about law is that it generally seeks the minimum. Okay, so in other words, when we're talking about, for example, is something a violation of the law, you're really saying, what's the least legal thing I can do and still be legal? Okay, how, how close can I get? Okay, you know, am I speeding? Which is, how fast can I go without getting a ticket? Okay, uh, if you're in a contract, what's the least I have to do in order to not get sued for breach of contract? So law, which is talking about, you know, the difference between right and wrong, between acceptable and unacceptable, is focused on that line. It's focused on that point. Where's the division between acceptable and unacceptable, legal and illegal, okay, right and wrong? And so when you're focused on law, that's what you're looking at. Whereas one of my favorite quotes that I use often from uh, Pastor Andy Stanley is when he says, he doesn't like the question from people, they go, Pastor, is that a sin? And he'd say, like, why are you asking? If you ask the question, is that a sin, he he interprets that as meaning that what you're trying to do is get as close to sin as possible. Okay? (laughs) You know, that you're asking, have I crossed the line from not sin into sin? Because what I really want to do is get my toes right up to the line without going over. So the study, you know, the law is not about getting you to the best possible place, all right? Doing the most good that you can, 
being the best that you can. It's about finding that dividing line between acceptable and unacceptable, and that's not the place you want to be. Now, in this specific example, Jesus goes on to say, beware the scribes because they devour widows' houses. So this is foreshadowing what's going to happen in the story. All right? So the idea is that under the scriptures, there's a great obligation to care for the widow, to care for the poor, and instead they are taking from the poor. All right? They're devouring what she has rather than providing for her. And remember how last week's sermon ended? We were talking about how the scribe had given a great answer, but then Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. And we were talking about the idea that the not far was because what the scribe needed to do was take what he knew and put it into practice. The scribes undoubtedly know that the scripture requires them to take care of widows, to take care of the poor, but they're not actually doing it. And I want to talk a little bit today about why we don't. Why don't we act in accordance with what we know, okay? We, and it begins with a clear setup. So Jesus is watching people put money into the treasury. And so he's watching them put money into the offering. And it says, many rich people put in large some. So, of course, this is a setup for the rest of the story. And the reason why he knows is not because he's Jesus, but because of the way offerings were taken. So the offerings at the temple uh, had, to, had these large boxes with a big funnel on top. So the idea is, you know, we've all used a mailbox, right? Although I expect in a few years, our younger people will say, no, I do not understand what a mailbox is and what is this mail of which you speak, okay? But, um, all right, you know that it's designed, right? That it's designed so that what you cannot do is open it up, reach down, and grab mail out of it, okay? The offering boxes at the temple had these large metal funnels at the top that were long enough so that what you could not do is reach down and take money out, and the other thing is that, you know, money today, all right, significant money makes no noise, all right? So if you put a bill in, in fact, people in other countries say, your money looks way too similar. It's too easy to confuse. Why does your $100 bill look almost exactly like a $1 bill, okay? And, um, but we don't know, all right? I can't hear that. A check doesn't, a check for a large amount of money makes the same sound going in the box as a dollar bill, right? Okay, so you have no idea. But back then, coins were all about weight. Value was all about weight, okay? So you heard a large offering, all right? You would hear the difference between someone throwing a handful of silver dollars into, say, a metal pail versus someone throwing a penny in. So it was obvious to everyone who was putting in a large sum of money because what you heard was a quantity of very heavy coins going into that metal funnel. So they would very proudly throw their large chunk of money in and everyone knew that was a big offering. And then along comes this widow who puts in two small copper coins. 
Now, I'm going to shorten this piece because at 9 o'clock people got too much of a lesson in Roman numismatics. But, um, <laughs> okay. but uh, just so you know, translating money is a difficult thing from culture to culture because people use different words and even the words and the understanding of the valuations become different. So, you know, you go to England and you hear words like farthing. What's a farthing? I have no idea. Okay? And in Canada, they have different nicknames for coins. And when I was a kid, a dollar was actually a lot of money. And so if you referred to a dollar, you could actually buy something with it. Now it would be much less. And so when they translate money in the Bible, they try to translate it in a way that's relatable to you, except that how it's relatable in your culture and your language and your time changes over time. And so um, I just want to point out that there's another passage in the Bible where, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And he's trying to talk about how little value the sparrow is, and yet God cares about a sparrow, which is so which is so lacking in value that two sparrows are worth a penny, the coin that is a penny there is not actually the smallest coin, okay? It's actually a coin that is a fair amount more of greater value than the coin that the, that the widow puts in, okay? In fact, the coin that the widow puts in is called a lepta, and there are eight lepta to an asarian, which is the coin Jesus uses when he's talking about the sparrows. So when he says two sparrows are sold for an asarian, he's actually saying that two sparrows are sold for eight lepta. And here, that means one sparrow is four lepta, and here the woman is throwing in, the widow is throwing in two lepta, so she doesn't even have enough to buy a sparrow. So just understand that she's got that little money. Okay? So it's even less than, than the coin that Jesus is referring to. And so she has so little, she couldn't even buy a sparrow with that money. And then Jesus says, well, look, but at the end of the day, she, out of her poverty, put in everything. The others, okay, they, they gave out of their abundance. They gave out of the fact that they were wealthy. All right. And by the way, just as an aside on this passage, sometimes uh, this passage is referred to as the widow's might. Okay, and and you hear people, you know, when they are on, when they only contribute a small amount to a project, and people say, uh, "Oh, don't worry. You remember the widow? You know, her two coins are worth so much." That is not the same, people. <laughs> okay, that's a total misuse of the passage. All right, if you and I give a little, we're giving a little. All right, the point was that she only had a little, and she gave it all. Okay, so that was actually the point. And the fact that she's in this position of giving all and of having so little to give, there's a question here about whether Jesus is really extolling the situation or actually lamenting it. Because he doesn't actually say some of the things about the widow that he often says in other circumstances where people are acting on faith. Okay? There could be a sense here that Jesus is actually lamenting the situation that she finds herself in of having so little. And a lot of the way we look at this passage actually hinges on how we're going to interpret those words out of. What does it mean to contribute out of your abundance and what does it mean to contribute out of your poverty? And that out of is actually a Greek preposition, ek. And this preposition, ek, the definition of it is to denote change from one place or condition to another. That's why one of the ways ek is used is the word from. Because if you move from point A to point B, you have changed your location, okay? And so it denotes change. So what is the change that's happening here 
The change is that she has nothing but gives abundantly. All right? She has nothing but gives all. The rich person may be able to give more, but they didn't give all. And they didn't change their condition. In fact, they gave as if they had little, because presumably after they gave, they were still rich. So the change, the ek, the out of, is the, the people with abundance giving as if they had scarcity and the people with scarcity giving as if they had abundance. See, this story inverts this idea of abundance versus scarcity. It's not what you have. It's how do you act. Do you act like you have abundance or do you act like you have scarcity? And why is that? See, why is it that she's able to give all she had to live on? I think it's because she's thinking about more than just the moment. See, thinking in the moment is an interesting thing because when we think about the moment, it's a more complex thing sometimes than just the moment moment. For example, in this moment, this actual just moment, I have a wallet in my pocket and there is some cash in the wallet. At this moment, I have no need of that cash, right? I'm standing here, nothing to buy. I have no need of it right now. If you ask me for 20 bucks, my decision is actually not going to be based on what I actually have going on right now. It's going to be based on what I think is going to happen. Right? All what would the decision pattern be? It's like, well, how much am I planning to spend on how much do I have? How much am I going to spend on lunch? How much do I have in the bank? Where's an ATM? You know, all of those things which are all future things influencing the way I interpret the now. Okay. And one of the things that we often don't understand or fully appreciate is the extent to which what we believe about what we have is actually being influenced by what we believe we're going to have. Our attitude of abundance isn't based on what you have. It's based on what you believe you're going to need, what you believe you're going to have. All right. Everything's anticipation. And so my perceptions of what the future is going to be have a profound impact on how I interpret my present. There's a professor, Walter Brueggemann, he's a, I've quoted him a few times, he's a retired professor of Old Testament at Columbia, he was at Columbia Theological Seminary outside of Atlanta. And his entire career really was predicated on his interpretation of the Old Testament as a study in the contrast between the ideas of abundance and scarcity. That what you have is a God who creates and gives abundantly. And then you have figures like Pharaoh who represented scarcity. 
And with the scarcity mindset, it became about acquiring, it became about holding, it became about controlling. And that the Old Testament is basically a study in the choice between whether we are going to be people who understand our, our condition to be one of abundance or our condition to be one of scarcity. And so he said this, he said, he, it's a great quote of his, he says, the power of the future lies not in the hands of those who believe in scarcity, but of those who trust God's abundance. The power of the future. Because if you believe that your future is one of scarcity, you are weak. You will act out of weakness. You will hoard. You will be selfish. You will not share because you believe that your future is one of scarcity. When you believe your future is one of abundance, it's liberating. It liberates you to be generous. You have a power to be bold in the present because of the hope that you have in the future. See, when we hear about that widow taking her two coins and throwing them in, giving all she had, I don't know about you, but the next thought in my head is, what's she going to live on? That's not a present question. That's a future question. What's she going to live on tomorrow? She just took her last two coins and threw them in. What's she going to live on? That's a question about the perception of her future. And I think she was able to throw them in, to be bold, because she believed she would be cared for. Because she believed that her future was not desolate. I think implicitly when we're frightened by the fact that she put her last two coins in, we're believing in a future of desolation for her as opposed to believing in a future of abundance for her. And that's a reflection on the attitude we bring to the interpretation of circumstances. So I want to close out. It's going to take about two and a half, three minutes for us to do this. There's a poem and a prayer that was written by Walter Brueggemann. And it's a poem slash prayer called On Generosity. It reframes what we see. It sort of talks about teaching us to, to reframe what we see versus what we are taught to see. And I would like us to read it together as it comes on the screen. It's going to take about two and a half, three minutes, and might seem longer to some of you, but, <laughs> uh, but I think it's worth it. So let's read this together, if you will. On our own, we conclude there is not enough to go around. We are going to run short of money, of love, of grades, of publications, of members, of years, of life. We should seize the day, seize our goods, Seize our neighbor's goods because there is not enough to go around. And in the midst of our perceived deficit, you come. 
You come giving bread in the wilderness. You come giving children at the eleventh hour. You come giving homes to exiles. You come giving futures to the shut down. You come giving Easter joy to the dead. You come fleshed in Jesus. And we watch while the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor dance and sing. We watch and we take food we did not grow and life we did not invent and a future that is gift and gift and gift and families and neighbors who sustain us when we did not deserve it. It dawns on us, late rather than soon, that you give food in due season. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. By your giving, break our cycles of imagined scarcity. Override our presumed deficits, quiet our anxieties of lack, transform our perceptual field to see the abundance, mercy upon mercy, blessing upon blessing. Sink your generosity deep into our lives, that your muchness may expose our false lack, that endlessly giving, receiving, we may endlessly give so that the world may be made Easter new, without greedy lack, but only wonder, without coercive need, but only love, without destructive greed, but only praise, without aggression and invasiveness, all things Easter new, all around us, toward us, and by us, all things Easter new, finish your creation, in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. Friends, what you believe about tomorrow shapes both the present and the future. All is something we think about as a present condition. But all today is not all tomorrow in the hands of a generous, abundant God. Amen.